Good morning, church. Would you please meet me in Exodus chapter 20? And if you'd like, go ahead and put a bookmark in Matthew chapter 7. Exodus chapter 20, Genesis, Exodus, so the second book of the Bible, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you get to Mark, Luke, and John, go back to the left so that you can be in Matthew. Exodus 20, Matthew chapter 7. A couple of things before we jump in. We have a baptism class after the gathering today, so if you're interested in learning more about baptism as we understand the scriptures to teach baptism here at Church of the Square, meet in the lobby, and then we'll walk to a conference room together. And then also members, uh, we are gathering next Sunday at 5 p.m., and we really sense that we need to just come together, celebrate what God has done. So we're catering in some food, celebrating, thanking him, hearing stories of his faithfulness from the past year. Believe it or not, we've only been up to this journey with the Lord for about 16 months or so, and so I think it's going to be healthy and good for us to just pause as a church, say, here's what God has done, and actually, I really enjoy you as a person. Let's just enjoy a meal and thank him for that. So that's what we will be doing next uh, Sunday, 5 p.m. We'll have some food, we'll hear some stories, and we'll celebrate God's goodness to us that way. Sound good? All right. All of you will be there. Wonderful if you are members, that is. If you're not a member and you show up, serious consequences. Um, (laughs) We'll make you become a member on the spot. I don't know if you remember these words. It says, because we want our children in this nation to know that the only limit to your achievements is the strength of your dreams and your willingness to work for them. Those words may sound familiar to you, perhaps from 2008 or 2016, and that's why it's interesting. If you remember, these words were a few, and a few other choice phrases were at the middle of a very stirring controversy in 2016 during the Republican National Convention. Journalist Jarrett Hill was one of the first to notice and share that Melania Trump's 2016 speech bore striking resemblance to that of Michelle Obama's address in 2008. Some reacted with outrage, calling it theft and plagiarism. Others dismissed it, suggesting that these were merely a set of words that were common parlance. And you can imagine, in this particular day and age, how those lines were divided. In 2013, a prominent pastor was being interviewed over the phone by radio host Janet Mefford when she presented evidence pointing toward plagiarism, or at least, the very least, pointing to a suggestion of lack of citation and of giving credit, pointing towards plagiarism at the very most about his recent bestseller, he hung up the phone immediately. Over the next few days, more of the pastor's books were called into question as it relates to attributing quotes and ideas. A publishing house came under fire, and many people were pretty upset. This is actually not just an issue for those pastors who maybe would be dubbed as celebrity preachers or Christian publishing houses, but many pastors in modern-day pulpits are daily taking ideas and representing them as their own. In 2002, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported on pastoral plagiarism, saying from Massachusetts to Texas, preachers have been caught delivering sermons verbatim and without attribution that they purchased from online or merely took printed sermon services. Most are not even purchased, though. Most are merely downloaded, taken from a transcript, and delivered at local churches as their own words. Now, for some of us, this may not be a big deal. Uh, it may just be a little thing, uh, a, a not something significant for us to discuss. And by now, though, I hope you've understood from this series, I say to you, as we've looked at the Ten Commandments and on into the Sermon on the Mount, that many things we at first blush take really lightly and go, that's not a big deal. Jesus reveals actually really is a huge issue with our heart. See, we often think that our sin is not a big deal, and therefore we're shocked at Jesus' teaching, especially the consequences he exacts upon us in righteousness. But we must be mindful of our fresh context as we come to the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. See, the world may have changed, but the word has not. Can I get an amen? The world has changed, but the word has not. 
We must be mindful of this fresh understanding that God's truth, though, still guides and directs us as a people, though the application of his word may look different for us than perhaps in previous generations. Whereas the first audience to hear Moses' words, perhaps they first went to the idea of stealing stealing physical, material, objective sorts of belongings, you and I must consider the full aspect of what God had in mind as he communicates to his people, not merely by guessing as to what he meant in Exodus 20, but by looking at the full narrative of Scripture, understanding the fullness of a biblical ethic about the nature of theft. In particular, we should also be mindful of the shift in our, our culture, in our, in our world. We, we should understand that there's a shift, and, and bear with me for just a second, from the industrial age to the information age that has sort of changed our way of thinking about this, and it must. See, sometime after the Second World War, the late 1940s, uh, heavy military or heavy gut, rather government investment in new technologies, particularly those of used by the military for war effort, among these technologies were electronics and computers shortly after the war began to be applied in a more broad business sense. So also these two scientists then after that get together, uh, Jack Kilby from Texas Instruments. You may remember him from calculator fame, right, that many of you had to get at some point in your career. Robert Noyce from Fairchild Semiconductor. These two get together in 1959. They begin to piece together different ideas that lead to the silicone chip. Soon after this, the world is primed, and particularly these two men and their work is primed for an unthinkable revolution that begins to lead to the internet. And now, what you and I think of as possessions has been changed forever. What you and I understand to be something that belongs to me has changed. See, this shift in culture is the commodification of ideas, the making of an idea into a particular thing that you think it would be really nice, but maybe many of you would think that would be great to just blame the politicians and preachers. See, it affects all of us. It affects each one of us, and it should actually help us in our reading and our application of the Eighth Commandment, because I do not believe that the Lord merely had physical, tangible, and material things in mind when he spoke these words. See, though we may not give speeches or write books, the information age and now this digital economy, we have moved from copying CDs and DVDs and illegally bringing down files from the internet to now questions about sharing Netflix and Disney Plus login information. See, maybe many of us would go to the Lord, well, he didn't know about Disney Plus and Exodus 20, so it's cool, it's legit. He didn't know about Spotify. He didn't realize back then you couldn't just sing a song, someday we'd just listen to it in our earbuds. He didn't know. And here we begin to do this like literal maneuver away from God's word and fail to consider what's the Lord really talking about. And I've got to be honest with you, coming off the heels, I was just sharing with a couple of our leaders this morning, coming off the heels of murder and adultery, I was looking forward to a week off from stealing. Well, stealing is not really something that I do anymore. I used to take gum off the shelf, right? When I'm checking out, my mom looks one way, I grab it, repented all that, I'm a changed man, I no longer do that. I confessed all of that and I had to bring it back to, this, to Target. It was, a, it was a bad situation. I do not recommend it. <clears throat> See, in a biblical mindset, we have to understand that though a particular person or particular people may not have exactly the same things in mind that we would when we hear a text, it doesn't mean that God didn't. It doesn't mean that he does not mean it for our good and for our joy, because what begins to take place as we read the scriptures, we realize that the prohibition against theft was much more about the human heart than it was about the hands, than it was about the physical and the material The Bible is speaking from a holistic standpoint. God's word is therefore not constricted by time. It doesn't fit nice and neat within a particular people group. It it doesn't sort of become rendered as obsolete just because things change in culture. Therefore, his words do not fall impotent at the shifting culture or innovations, but rather constantly critique the heart, which is not fully submissive to his will. That's what I believe that we'll discover. See, when we move beyond the physical, move beyond the intellectual, see, we realize that our issue with stealing is deeper still. It goes down to the deep contours of our hearts, and this is where Jesus encourages us. This is where Jesus gives us no wiggle room. This is where he precisely points, and it will be for your joy and for mine. So let's go to God and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we uh, confess to you 
There are times when we read the word and we think that has to do with me and other times we think, wow, I can't believe that some people struggle with that. So forgive me for the ways that I've thought that this week. Forgive me for the ways that somehow somehow I am often unaffected by the clarity of your word. Forgive me in particular, Father, for the ways that I can grow stale and unconvicted by the truth because it's a lot more comfortable to think that I've graduated past the eighth commandment than to ask you if I have. To ask you to search me and know me. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. Lord, I pray that for myself, but I also pray that for my sisters. I pray that for my brothers. I pray that perhaps for my friends and neighbors for the very first time that you would expose the truth of our hearts through the truth of your word and do what you are so faithful to do, God. You do not expose what you do not then clothe and heal and restore and bring to life. And so, God, we desire to be submissive to your will and ask that you would have your way in us as we come to your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said amen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, if you'll meet me there. Again, we're studying the Ten Commandments, comparing and then considering the Sermon on the Mount as we look at them. And as, as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom ethic. It's, it's what he is communicating to us is, is his will, his rule, his reign in real space, in real time. And what we've discovered is that Jesus has come to fulfill the law, fulfill all that God has proclaimed throughout history, particularly and acutely, rather, the, the Ten Commandments. And see, I think around this, as he reframes, or rather frames rightly, the the law of God around the heart, there's something that can begin to take place, is that it exposes in us that we believe the lie that religion tells us, which is that if our hands are clean, then we're clean. In other words, if we haven't directly violated one of these commandments, at least in the way that we believe it should be interpreted in our mind's eye, then we're clean and we're good and we're fine. What Jesus says is no one's fine, no one's okay, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God as he reframes it around the heart. This is particularly true as we turn to the second portion of the commandments that we're in the middle of now, where we move away from the commandments directly relating to our relationship with God and now our relationship with one another about ultimately what it means, if you will, to love our neighbor as ourself, this this way that Jesus sort of summarizes the law as it relates to to our relationships. And so now, as we've looked at murder and adultery in this secondary movement, we'll now look at stealing. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. In the Hebrew translation of the Bible, like the commandments of uh, murder against murder and against adultery, it's simply two words. The first word is translated into you shall not, and the second word is the word that means to steal. And like the others, it's fairly straightforward. To steal, one author put it, is to take items without permission by the owner, but usually by stealth and not forced. Uh, Commentators later would add to this, prohibited that this command prohibited not only the secret or open removal of another person's property, but injury done to it or fraudulent retention of it through carelessness or indifference. In other words, do not steal is not merely about taking something willfully that does not belong to you, but it also teaches us that it's wrong if you have taken something you thought was up for grabs, but later found out actually belonged to someone, continually to retain that or to hold on to that, that's stealing. We can't often do this like moral jujitsu move where we go, well, when I took it, I didn't know it was stealing. Now that I know it belongs to somebody else, I mean finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? I mean, we make up this stuff as children and then live by them into our adulthood. This idea that if I didn't know or what my intentions were, we hide behind those things often. Here's another place that we do that. See, underneath all of this, and this is what begins to, I think, really unearth the soul. Underneath this prohibition of theft, God demonstrates the true nature of possessions, 
the true nature of what it means to be a neighbor who loves well. See, if God desires us not to steal, then he is telling us something positive about our possessions and our relationships with one another. Three things come to mind that the Lord communicates through this simple edict about possessions. The first is that this commandment demonstrates that possessions are meant for good, not evil. Contrary to some monastic views of the world or millennial ones as well, like this minimalistic sort of perspective, possessions should, should be viewed as blessings from God. Some suggest that because of the spiritual nature of God, we should only embrace and love spiritual things and not material things. And so many monks of different varieties and different traditions take vows of simplicity, of having minimal possessions. But Psalm 89.11 makes this claim, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. God both created and owns all the possessions in all of the universe. How then could they innately be evil? Not only so, but renouncing things does very little to remove us from sin. It may keep us from some of the trappings of the world, but it doesn't transform your heart. No matter what you abstain from, your heart remains the same. So renouncing possessions can't be the point of the Eighth Commandment. In creating then and owning and then defending the property of a person, God is revealing the value of possessions in general. Possessions are meant for good. Secondly, what we learn about this positively is that this commandment demonstrates possessions ought to be stewarded. So not only are possessions meant for good, they're meant to be stewarded, not stolen. The care of an idea or an object is the responsibility of the one whom, to whom it has been entrusted. God himself is one who James describes as the giver of every good and perfect gift. Therefore, possessions of all kinds should be cared for in reflection upon this kind of reality. We should treat things as if they have all come from God because they have. The Apostle Paul, or rather Peter, understood this principle even related to the spiritual world, the things that we possessed spiritually. He says this in 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. See, if God made everything and still owns everything but allows us to possess certain things in our lives, then we must steward them with wisdom, humility, integrity, and thankfulness. Thirdly, this commandment demonstrates we should respect the boundaries of our neighbors. To respect the boundaries of our neighbors, in particular their possessions. Remember, the command to not steal is an aspect of loving our neighbors. It falls within this particular movement of the commandments. And it's kind of moved in this descending order. See, first we were called to care for the whole life of our neighbor. Do not murder them. Secondly, we were told to care for the marriage of our neighbor. Do not commit adultery. And lastly, we're instructed to care for the property of our neighbor. Do not steal. This is a call to care because in theft, we do not simply take an innate object or an idea from him or her, but we also disregard the goodness of God to deliver and to distribute provisions and calls of stewardship. Thievery, as Martin Luther put it, is more than just taking a possession, it's taking advantage. See, as creator and provider, God has a high call or high view rather on possessions as long as they are stewarded well and not cherished more than the members of your community. Things are never more important than people. And this is the principle behind the stewardship of them. These righteous overtures throughout the Bible then lead to a much more sophisticated understanding of the Eighth Commandment and God's heart behind it. You see, through the scriptures, the call to not steal was never simply about physical possessions. In fact, when we look at the whole view of theft and God's understanding of possessions and the gift of those possessions and what a possession actually is throughout all of scripture, we're given a, a number of different hues about what theft looks like, if you will, throughout the scriptures. In, in Genesis chapter 27, we're given a picture of birthright theft. Isaac, the son of Abraham, had two sons, twin boys, uh, with Rebecca. Rebecca loved Jacob and Esau not so much, but Esau was the oldest. He was meant to get the family birthright, so she devised a plan with her favorite son and stole Esau's blessing. Not only a birthright, but also there's accidental theft. There are laws of restitution in Exodus chapter 22 that if money or property had been entrusted to a neighbor 
or borrowed by a neighbor, and then it was subsequently stolen or misused, that was viewed as a need for restitution based on the theft of that particular property. The neighbor was culpable because of their lack of care for what had been entrusted to them. Thirdly, not only birthright and accidental, but business theft. Things like excessive interest were rampant in the uh, ancient world. Tipping scales and extorting the poor to garner unfair wages. These were all common hazards of life. The Bible calls all of that stealing. In fact, perhaps one of the chief pictures of this kind of theft is a man named Zacchaeus that we're introduced to in Luke 19. He was a wee little man, but he was a chief tax collector and then became a follower of Jesus. And when Jesus met him, he called him to repentance and Zacchaeus responds, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He realized what he had done was not take a particular property with his hands. He had tricked them with his mind in extorting those who had less than him. Not only so, not only accidental, not only birthright, not only business theft, but we also see human theft in the scriptures. Slavery in all of its forms is not directly prohibited in Scripture, but like many generational sins, the Scriptures give very clear understanding of the existence of these systems, give instruction biblically to masters and slaves, and restrains the brokenness of the spiritual erosion caused by this sin. However, there is a clear mandate against stealing people and making them slaves in Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 says whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death taking people is against God's will see a commandment which once again at least me and my own study and even preparing for this morning at first blush is like that's common knowledge we've taken a week off this isn't as severe all of a sudden there's much more going on here sin is much closer to the chest than perhaps we originally suspected. See, in many ways, what the scriptures begin to show us is that we are all thieves. The eighth commandment exposes all of us. And now, so as we look out across this sort of like righteous living and what it means to love our neighbor and possessions and the biblical restitution that must be uh, exacted because of what we have stolen, we need some help. Jesus, yet again, will help us by making us aware that this sin is very much closer than we realize, but then also giving us a righteous vision of who we're supposed to be. If we're not supposed to steal, if we're not supposed to be thieves, what are we to do? Please turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. Jesus gives us the righteous action which is in direct contradiction with stealing. He, he simply instructs his listeners to ask. Think about that. Instead of taking, ask, seek, knock. This is such a novel idea. Many of us perhaps never even think about it. Look at Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Verse 8, for everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus delivers this threefold rebuttal to the temptation of stealing. He says, ask, seek, and knock. The great 20th century preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once opened a sermon on this particular passage saying, I cannot imagine a better, more cheering, and more comforting statement with which to face all the uncertainties and hazards of life in this world of time than, the, than those contained in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. He went on to say that the essence of the whole biblical message could be summarized with these words. They are meant to be incredibly helpful and hopeful to us, especially when we are faced with the temptation or the belief that we must steal in order to be whole, in order to meet all of the provisions that we have. But what precisely is Jesus suggesting? These words come with greater context and assurance that Jesus calls us to not be anxious. He teaches his followers that they cannot serve God and money. You can't have two masters. Matthew 6, 25 is where he explains this particular principle. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
And more positively and generally, he says in verses 33 and 34 in chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. So our context by chapter 7, where we've just read, is conditioned by a peaceableness that does not merely come from being unworried about possessions and needs of this life, but rather a life that is marked by a hunger for the things of God, his kingdom, his righteousness, more than earthly possessions and needs. A reorientation has taken place. Something has been transformed in the soul And we might say that when we steal, we are putting our needs ahead of the kingdom. And Jesus is calling us to a different way because that particular way leads to a ton of anxiety. Aren't you worried? Aren't you anxious? Aren't you tired? We have so much stuff to worry about. We have so many things we don't have that we have to worry about. And the internet continues to tell us to worry about these things. Perhaps our heart continues to ache for them. See, when, when the kingdom of God is primary in our hearts, something amazing takes place. Then we not only have all of our needs met by God, but he takes away all of our anxiety as well. He deals with both. Th- that brings us to this particular call of asking, seeking, and knocking. And, and God's promise to give us what we ask for. And this is going to take some work to really understand and believe what's going on here. Because first we should understand that this is not just a simple call to prayer. Sometimes we read stuff like this and go, great, I should pray. Thank you. Could you have just boiled that down for me, Jesus? Because you already talked about that in uh, chapter 6. Even though he wouldn't have known what you were referring to in his chapters. It wasn't written down yet, but you get the point. He would have known because he's Jesus. I got you. This passage, though paints three distinct pictures, or what I'd like to suggest are three different postures with each of these words. First, he says, ask. This paints a picture of someone who has a need or a desire. They're in need of some type of provision. And this first petition seems to be the one that's most closely associated with prayer. Prayer, of course, is a spiritual discipline Jesus has given considerable attention to in chapter 6. Asking, therefore, comes from curiosity and also admitting vulnerability. It's not demand and entitlement. It's not saying, give me these things. It's saying, I am desperate for you. I need these things. There's the kind of lament. There's a kind of posture. There's a kind of humility. So we ask a question when we desire to know something. Now, why do we have to put it so clearly? Because we are often a people that don't ask questions. We're often the people that make presumptions. In, in other words, instead of asking, we presume that God has forgotten. We presume that God doesn't care. We presume that he doesn't know. And so we don't ask because we've presumed we have all the information that we need, so we don't even ask any questions. This is not the only relationship, by the way, that this takes place in, right? How many times in our human relationships do we assume, I know what you're going to say if I ask that, so I'm not going to ask it. I'm just going to move two streets away from this conversation and then make some claims and everything will work out. It doesn't work out very well at all, does it? We should ask some questions. Here's why we don't. Because asking a question is really vulnerable. It's admitting we don't know. It's admitting we don't have. And so the first posture, which is exposing, is vulnerability. The first posture Jesus tells us to take on. Secondly, seek. This paints a picture of someone who is looking for something. This is closely associated with prayer, but there's a next move here and directly connected with Jesus talking about seeking the kingdom. Someone who is seeking the kingdom is not merely asking for a vision, but they're beginning to move in obedience. They're beginning to take steps in submitting to King Jesus and listening to him as he responds to them in prayer. We seek something when we know it either has been lost or we know it exists, but we don't know precisely where or what it means to be in relationship with. And therefore, we we trust God. We trust his word. We begin to move in that. We begin to obey that. We begin to seek that. And so in that seeking, we take on a second posture of investigation through obedience. So we don't seek by remaining apathetic. We don't seek by remaining passive. We actually seek through obedience. Thirdly, he says not. This paints a picture of someone who doesn't have access somewhere of some kind. And perhaps the first thing that pops in our mind when we think about somebody knocking on a door is revelation in Jesus, where Jesus stands at the door and knocks. But in this particular case, Jesus isn't knocking. He is instructing us to. He is instructing us to knock because we do not have access to a particular place. So likely pointing to this narrow gate in Matthew 7.13, knocking, therefore, is about announcing presence and readiness. 
When you knock, you're saying, I'm here and I'm ready to step in. So it's moving from prayer into seeking and obedience, now into this posture of waiting, sitting at the will of another. Vulnerable to the will of another, vulnerable to the point of being patient until something is open or something is given access to you. It requires trust, doesn't it? To stand at a door and knock requires that we trust on the one who can open that door. So the third posture that Jesus communicates in Matthew 7 is the posture of waiting. These three pictures or postures, vulnerability, obedience, and waiting, which manifest particularly through prayer, investigating and obeying God's word in community and trusting. Lord, together I believe what Jesus is communicating for us is the antidote to stealing. And the promise is crazy for each of these. Did you notice? For each of these pictures of these metaphors, if you ask, it'll be given to you. If you seek, you're going to find it. If you knock, it will be open. In other words, this is an effective pathway in the middle of our need, no matter what it is we lack. This is the way. Not stealing, but asking, seeking, and knocking. Jesus puts it even more emphatically in John's gospel in chapter 14 and then 16. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father would be glorified through the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's John 14. And then by by chapter 16, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What Jesus seems to be suggesting in the Sermon on the Mount, all the way into his farewell discourse here in John, is that kingdom people are those who have received an invitation to ask anything that we desire and it will be granted. However, the context, remember, is both in both addresses is anchored in a kingdom-first mentality and a request based upon the name, fame, character, nature of Jesus. This context, then, is one of transformation. In the kingdom, our asking, seeking, and knocking all change in alignment to the heart of God. So if we've thought of stuff that we've been asking for, things that we have been asking for, we are misunderstanding the context in which Jesus is speaking this word. It's a transformed life that asks, seeks, and knocks, and it will all be given to them. Practically, this leads us to some crazy prayers, some crazy requests, some crazy seeking, and some altogether different kinds of knocking, if you will. I think the words of Proverbs 30 really helped to illustrate this tension that you and I now will face, the kinds of things that we will say and desire, it best, I think, articulates what a thieving heart has a hard time saying. Hear this from Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or least I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. The wisdom writer seems to have such an uncanny self-awareness, knowing that if they have too much money, they'll deny God, and if they don't have enough money, they'll break his commandments. Either way, They know that they're going to rebel against God. Either way, they know that they would steal God's glory or they would steal temporal provision. And so the writer prays, give me neither poverty nor riches. Suffice to say, we only pray like this when we have been transformed by God into given hearts, as C.S. Lewis explains in the Screwtape Letters, saying that God wants to fill the universe with replicas of himself qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because they will will freely conform to his will. He wants servants who finally become sons. Our asking, seeking, and knocking come in line with his character and kingdom because in Christ, our desires become new. This is one of the ways you know that you're a Christian. You start desiring things that your old self is like, you're crazy, 
Why would you want that? Why would you want to tell the truth when you know there's consequences? Why not keep this to yourself and be freed from the discomfort? Why would you be in community when they're going to ask you about sin? Just don't go to group this week. And you're like, no, but that's good for me to confess sin and to repent and to come to Jesus. Like, whoa, the Lord's working on me. The Lord's doing something. See, if you need something, don't steal, but ask. Just ask, seek, and knock. This is what Christians do, and it's yours. Now, I think we're all a little bit skeptical right now. Let's just, let's just keep it real. I think we're all saying in our minds, I just don't think it's going to be this easy. I don't think anything should be that easy. See, and then as soon as soon, I think the other thing, help me in this, Lord. The other thing is that some, some of us, this whole message are just like, I don't, have any, I don't need to steal anything. I got everything. I'm fine. Like, this thing is just not even hitting me. You've already stolen God's glory. You believe everything that you have possessed is something that you have earned that he has not given to you and therefore you're already trying to steal his glory. See, all of us fall prey to this. And so it can't possibly be this easy. See, underneath our smug glory thievery is a simple lack of trust that God has even given us anything. I worked hard for it. I'm American. I earned all of this. I worked hard for all of this. I don't need to look back at the carnage behind me. I, I, I deserve this. I worked harder than anybody else. But doesn't this all, in the midst of all of that, seem way too basic? Ask and you'll be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open. Too basic, too easy, too lavish. But this is what the Bible teaches. Over and over again. The point, though, is not that persistent asking and knocking is not that our human persistence wins out in the end and somehow we melt down God and he has to cave in and give us what we want. It's not like me and my daughter, right? She looks at me, I break, I give her whatever she wants, whether it's good for her or not. Thank you, Laura, for being patient with me. I appreciate it. (laughs) Who sees truth and wisdom in developing our children? Back to the text. But this is not how the Lord sort of breaks down because we're sort of whimpering children. But the heavenly Father who loves to give his children will certainly answer their prayer because he is your heavenly Father who is good. It's not because we're annoying. It's because he's good. See, this exposes a really a deep trust that God is really generous. We don't think God is generous, so we don't ask, we steal. We don't seek, we take for ourselves. We don't knock, we beat down doors that we want to get through. This is why it's so beautiful that Jesus highlights the fatherhood of God, and he does it in such a way where we don't even see it coming. Jesus anchors this teaching in Matthew 7, as should be all of the morality communicated in the scripture and the nature of God. See, ultimately, all morality that is good, all that is good, all that is prescribed in God's word, every commandment is anchored in the character and nature of God. This is consistent not just in the Sermon on the Mount, not just in the farewell discourse, but in all of the teaching of Scripture. All that is good, all that is lovely, all that is true, all that is beautiful, all comes from, emanates from the character of God. So if you ask a question about a rule as to why, you should always follow that rule, that righteous regulation back to the character of God. What does this teach? What does this reveal? What does this show about the nature of God? Because it always does. And Jesus goes on to describe the nature of God through this mini parable in verse 9, and again in Matthew chapter 7. Or which of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Jesus is essentially making a comparison, but not before throwing some serious shade. Did you notice this? (laughs) He sets up all of the fathers on the hillside in this little moment. Think about the internal dialogue that would have been going on in that particular moment. These people sitting, listening to Jesus as he taught, sitting on the hillside. Jesus gives a principle, like, just ask, and your Father will give all that you need. Doubters on the hill, um, that seems a little bit too good to be true. What's the catch? And here's Jesus' response. Jesus, which of you would give your sons a stone if he asks for bread? Earthly fathers, not me. I'm a good dad. I wouldn't do that. Basic, easy, nailed it. Jesus, which of you would give your sons a snake if he asked for a fish? Not me. I'm a good dad, said all of the earthly fathers. Jesus says, great answer. Now, if you, who are a terrible father, who is exactly and actually really bad and terrible, if that's your answer, know now how good, if you know how to give those good gifts, how much more does your heavenly father, who is internally worthy and beautiful and good and generous, how much more is he going to give you exactly what you need when you ask him? The crowd's like, 
oh, didn't see that coming. What Jesus is communicating in this sort of ancient rhetorical device is communicating from least to greatest through how much more. In other words, if there's something that you and I get the basic components of, God is an expert of it. God, it's in his elemental nature to be generous. If we believe that generosity is a good thing, it's because God invented generosity. He has revealed that through his creation. In fact, even if we just look at the creation of God, we will see these multiplicity of ways that he is a generous God. And I just want to give that to us because I think it's so brilliant when we simply consider the first couple chapters of Scripture. We're not even going to do a whole overview just yet. Let's just consider creation. All of creation is an act of love, of God giving himself an initial act of generosity. He creates everything and then gives it to Adam and Eve, subsequently to all of humanity, to steward and care for. Therefore, he entrusts us as stewards of all of creation. And through God's creation alone, we see all of this generosity, not only in the gift of it, but now let's think about it. Through the creation event, we see that God created creation to give. He created creation to give. The sun gives light. The moon gives gravity. The waters give life. The stars give an ancient map. The earth gives stability and nutrients. The clouds give rain. The plants give shade and food. The animals give companionship and more, even more delicious food. The insects and birds and fish pollinate and bring ecological symmetry and more food. And the man and the woman give community and give life. All of creation was given to give. Not only that, but God's creation is not simply practically generous in that it gives us the things that we need to live. It gives us even more than that. In the fullness of the beauty of creation, we see the brilliance of a sunrise that pulls at your soul when you see it. The ominous grandeur of a full moon, the majesty of a night sky, the shaking power of thunder and lightning, the brilliant instinct of a pod of dolphins and a murmuration of starling birds and the love and joy and mutuality of a man and a woman. God's generosity leaps from his creation work in a multiplicity of ways that we often are blind to. God's generosity does not simply keep you alive. It gives you reason to breathe every day. In all of this, we do not see that creation is interesting. We see that God is glorious and he's generous, and all of the prodigality that we see from creation tells us of a deeper, deeper, lavish generosity that he bestows upon us spiritually. In his generosity to his people in creation, he does not merely create awesome stuff and then say, take good care of it, and walks away. He remains intimately close, helping us to understand that we are even his workmanship. As if to say, I've given you food, and friendship, I've given you beauty and meaning and joy, and here's what it's all about. Here's what it's pointing you to. In response, his generosity flows in a persistent stream of faithfulness throughout all of time and all of Scripture to this very moment and on into eternity. See, God's most generous act is that he remains generous to us even through our stealing. You see, along with Adam and Eve, we stole back God's generous gift of creation and used it for our own purposes. The actual tree and the idea that God is generous, he's forgiving, he's gracious, he restores what we break through thieving. Creation also shows us this generosity of God is in a relationship with him. It's not just things that he gives us, it's that he is with us. All of this to say, when Jesus paints comparison between earthly parental love and that of our heavenly father, he is saying there is no comparison here. God's generosity is practical. It is beautiful. It is spiritual. It is eternal. It does not simply supply what we need. It gives us even things we didn't know we desired and needed. He's not waiting for us to string together just the right sentence. We get it just right, and then he'll give us grace. He is ready eager, ready, and excited to lavish upon us all of the power and mercy and generosity that he has. Your vulnerability and curiosity and patience, I think this is what he desires from us, to be a people ready to see a God like that. In his recent Netflix special, 
comedian Ronnie Chang makes something really, really clear about us. We are not content. He presents our collective discontent by suggesting an update to Amazon Prime now, which he's already dubbed uh, Amazon Prime before. Send it to me, he says, before I want it, in as many boxes as possible. See, not only does he really key on in this insatiable appetite that we have for more possessions and more stuff, but we even have an unwillingness to wait for it for two-hour delivery. So, church, how can we be a people who ask, seek, and knock in accord with God's good pleasure if we are no longer satisfied by waiting two hours for something we just ordered on our phone? But we have to understand and admit the discontent first. Many of us would not choose that word when speaking about ourselves, that we are a discontent people. Theologian William Barclay, though, says that we live in a world that breeds discontent. This means many of the powerful influences in our world are meant to create dissatisfaction and displeasure and lusts for more. In fact, an entire premise of marketing is built upon the law of scarcity. It aims to make consumers feel as though only a piece of whatever limited supply of a product or widget or thing or idea that they have could fill this newly discovered or usually newly invented need and void in our life. I think this discontent is often the foundation of what Im- the impulse that leads us to stealing and not asking, seeking, and knocking. Now, our presumption may, very well may be, well, okay, well, all I need to do is have less, right? This is really how our generation is beginning, or my generation is really beginning to work on this. We need to be more content, so I need less stuff. I need to be minimalistic. I need to only own what I need. But that's not the biblical model. The biblical model is not get rid of your stuff. I think God has created in us an insatiable desire that cannot be cured, cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. Therefore, to be content is not to desire or have less. It is to find satisfaction in the right things. It's not to have less things. It's to be rightly satisfied. You see, the principles of marketing are not the issue. Corporate America is not the issue. The issue lies within the heart that is deceived into believing that it can be made glad by fleeting pleasures. Reminds us of the famous C.S. Lewis quote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The commandment to not steal has led us to the shy Christian virtue of contentment. And contrary to popular opinion, contentment in Christ is not settling for lesser desires but rather not allowing temporal pleasures to impersonate eternal glory. Contentment in Christ is not about settling for lesser pleasures, lesser desires rather, but rather not allowing temporal pleasures to impersonate eternal glory. To be content in Christ is to refuse to be satisfied by anything but Christ. So what keeps us from him? What maintains this diet for fleeting things, things that we must steal what causes us to steal instead of ask and seek, what keeps us from being content in Christ. Well, underneath all of that, I wonder if it's this disbelief that God can bring me contentment and that he truly is generous. See, James explains all of this in his fourth chapter, giving us a pretty bleak situation of the scattered church in the first century. There's fighting and quarreling, all because there are passions at war within them. And so he encourages them. He says, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to him, be humble. See, what Jesus reveals in us more than anything is that we have an issue in our consideration of who God is. We don't have a wrong view of possessions per se. We have a wrong view of God, the provider. This leads to behaviors and habits of theft. You see, when you and I don't trust that God will supply all of our needs, that he'll fulfill our deepest desires, we take matters into our own hands, don't we? When we are not satisfied with Christ, we look for satisfaction elsewhere. Sometimes it's very simple. We don't trust that God will supply our finances, so we steal login information to save $10 a month. We don't trust that God's uh, God's, uh, got our reputation, so we steal someone else's reputation. 
We act like their words are ours. We act like what they have performed, we have performed. We don't trust God's wisdom, and so we steal quotes and ideas and sermons. We don't trust the platform he's entrusted to us, and so we steal his glory. We don't trust. This causes a lot of quarrels, a lot of fights, a lot of frustration, even in the church. See, our lack of trust ultimately stems from a disbelief that God is really generous, that he really wants to give to us all that we need, that he really wants to bestow upon us all that would make our hearts glad. We don't believe he's the heavenly father who is eager, willing, ready, and excited to bless us. We think he is holding back and we have to pry his hands open with our own will. On his way to the cross, Jesus went to the wilderness tempted by the devil over and over again to steal glory from God, and he didn't. On his way to the cross, Jesus walked with his disciples. He even came to his father and said, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And Jesus asked, he sought, and he knocked. And on the cross, we are told that Jesus hung between two other people. Each gospel account tells us that there were two. Matthew and Mark tell us why they were there. They were thieves. They were robbers. Luke 24 makes it clear that one of them realizes they are there justly, they're there rightly. This is what we deserve. The other mocks Jesus. The other rebukes the one mocking. And then the man, the thief on the cross. This is how generous God is. While this man is dying for the sins that he has committed, he said, will you forgive me? And he says, Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's how generous our God is. You see the eagerness of God. Ready at the moment that we ask. Remember me, the man says, and Jesus says, I will. On the cross, Jesus shows that he is not there to steal. He is there to give. He is there to bless. He is there to bestow. So if you are lacking, if you are unsatisfied, if you lack contentedness, if you are too easily pleased, Look to the cross and see the generosity of our God who gives his one and only son. See, we're to be a community not made up of our possessions, but made up of trust. That we trust that the Lord will supply all of our needs because with godliness, with, or godliness with great contentment, Paul writes, is of great gain. And then on in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told that our greatest treasure is not something that we can own and hold in our hands, but the treasure that is signed and sealed for us in Christ. See, what the Father blesses, the Son secures, and the Spirit seals something that could never be stolen from you. Full and forever life with our God. So may we be content in Christ. He is our greatest treasure, something that can never be stolen. And it's when we see and understand him that our hearts will truly be glad and secure and content and at peace. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness because we have been a people far too easily pleased. Enamored by the immediacy of stuff. Hungry or trying to fill our hunger with things that are here one minute and gone the next. Forgive us, Lord. We will never be content if we continue to go to these things to fill us. So, Father, would you show us, would you remind us how we are filled by your Spirit through the work of Christ that we may be found in Him, that we would hunger and thirst no more? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.